0: Welcome to the Energetics Exchange Podcast, conversations with energy and climate experts. Please note that the information and commentary in this podcast is of a general nature only and does not take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of any particular individual or business. Listeners should not rely upon the content in this podcast without first seeking advice from a professional. Hello and welcome to the Energetics Exchange Podcast. I'm Dr Peter Holt, General Manager of Strategy at Energetics. Today, we're recording this podcast from Sydney, and I would like to start by acknowledging and paying respects to all First Nations people as the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. I particularly acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. On Monday, 9th of August, the United Nations Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change, released its sixth assessment report. This report is a comprehensive analysis of the physical science associated with climate change. With its release, the IPCC announced that climate change, widespread, rapid and intensifying. Today we want to explore what the findings mean for Australia and for Australian businesses. We also want to consider how climate science and business can work together to respond with the urgency needed as described quite clearly in the report. Today, I discuss these implications with Professor Andy Pittman, who is the Centre Director at the Centre of Excellence for Climate Extremes at the University of New South Wales. Andy is a climate scientist whose work has been acknowledged both nationally and internationally. He was a lead author for the IPCC assessment report three and four. Thank you for joining us today, Andy.
1: My pleasure, Peter.
0: Our other guest is my colleague, Sally Cook, who leads Energetic Strategy Services. She is an expert in managing the risks and identifying the opportunities as economies transition to net zero. Sally has advised boards and executive teams across the finance and investment sector, as well as major industries such as infrastructure, retail, oil and gas and mining. Welcome, Sally.
2: Hi, Peter.
0: So we've all heard the headlines of the IPCC report. The words are unequivocal: due to human behaviour, it's intensifying. We're reaching a tipping point. So, what is the main difference, Andy, between this report and the previous IPCC assessment reports?
1: Uh, So there's a variety of headline statements that much more. Strongly stated because we've got six or seven years more information and data and understanding than we had when the previous assessment report came out. So a lot of statements can be made now with much higher confidence than they could in the past. One of those is the unambiguous emergence of extreme events that are occurring, uh, well, faster than the climate scientists expected and with more frequency and more intensity than we expected. The report also has quite a significant narrative around uh, tipping points and abrupt climate change, which in all cases are low probability but high impact events this century, but they are increasingly difficult to discount. And finally, The quality of the regional information provided in the report has been significantly enhanced. So uh, your listeners could actually go to atlases now produced by the IPCC and see information at a regional scale of what we think will happen in terms of a whole range of climate variables. So would it be fair to say that this report now has historical evidence
0: where we can see the climate signal within historical information?
1: The evidence that humans were changing the climate using only observational data was established in about 2005, arguably 2001. It's just that there's more evidence and it's incontrovertible now. So in 2001 or 2005, we could say very clearly that the temperatures were warming because of human activity, whereas we probably couldn't say very much about average rainfall. Now we can say something about average rainfall. We can also say something about extreme rainfall. There is good evidence that uh, the wettest day of the year is getting wetter. The hottest day of the year is getting hotter. There's good evidence around emergent signals in drought, et cetera, et cetera. But no, it's been, I don't know, 25 years since the climate science community has told policymakers that uh, it's definitive and unequivocal that humans are changing the climate.
0: And Sally, as a professional working in this space, what were the key takeaways that you saw from the latest report?
2: I think one of the things that highlighted that Andy hasn't already mentioned is that climate change is already influencing all the regions on the earth. And so I think that's an important implication to take away. We think of climate change as having future impacts, but there are some present impacts now. I thought it was interesting that the report has narrowed the uncertainty range of future temperature projections. AR5, the fifth assessment report had a best estimate range between 1.5 and 4.5 degrees, and now that's 2.5 to 4 with higher levels of confidence, correct me if I'm wrong, Andy, Um, (laughs) which I think is really useful for policymakers in terms of understanding the way they frame policy in the context of longer-term trends. Um, It also provides some interesting updated commentary on the carbon budget, including points at which emissions need to peak, um, which is useful both for business understanding and for policymakers as well.
0: So if we turn our attention now to more of the regional focus and specifically Australia, one of the headlines from that was that Australia's warmed to at least 1.4 degrees over the land areas. Why are we warming faster than the average of the globe at about one degree?
1: Uh, So there's quite a a lot of nuance in those numbers. The first is the globe is warming, has warmed by about 1.1 degrees but that's the ocean and the land. If you just take the global land warming, it's probably not very different to the Australian land warming. I think Australia has warmed a little more than the global land average, but that's in part because the tropics tend not to warm as rapidly as the middle latitudes. Uh, the other things that the report talks about at length of the changes in many o- other extremes over Australia, there's unambiguous evidence of increasing frequency, magnitude, and duration of heat waves. There's unambiguous evidence of m- more intense rainfall in the tropical north, that there's a, a particularly winter rainfall decline in Southeast Australia and along many parts of Southern Australia, um, and Southwest Western Australia is certainly drying. And that there's a huge difference between identifying a trend and attributing that trend To human activity. And the things I've just mentioned, you can attribute those changes to human activity. In other words, they would not have occurred had we not increased the greenhouse gases. Uh, There's also changes in many other things. Uh, One of the critical ones for Australia is a lengthening of the fire season. There's also a greening trend over parts of Australia, and that might sound lovely, but it generates additional load for fire. There's a amazing emergence of ocean heat waves, which have all kinds of implications for fisheries, blue carbon, and um, as I've said publicly, if you haven't seen the reef yet, you better go quick. Uh, and those marine heat waves are emerging really shockingly fast. There's lots of other impacts at the regional scale, um, but I don't know if we need to really list them all because isn't that plenty? <laughs>
0: that That is plenty, and it is somewhat a little bit terrifying as well. And in terms of making sense of this, as a as a director at CLEX at University of New South Wales, how does a business um, or an organisation take consideration of all the extremes that they could experience? What do they do with that knowledge?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, that shouldn't be too hard to answer. Uh, it's clearly extraordinarily challenging for business to tease out of something like the IPCC report what is relevant to them and what isn't relevant to them. Even the summary for policymakers, which you have both looked at, the language in there is anything but plain English. You have to hold in your brain certainty ranges, probabilities, the nuancing of language, the physical climate science. It's really hard. And it's not a summary for policymakers. It's a quick summary for people with PhDs in climate science and a few really well-educated other people. Um, so I think what has to happen is there have to be go-betweens to help business understand how they're affected by the content in the IPCC report. And there are implications in the IPCC report for business. And in addition to that, there's a new IPCC report coming out middle of next year, which focuses on impacts and adaptation, and a further one next year, which focuses on mitigation, all of which have significant relevance to business, I think.
0: And Sally, if you were to take this information to a business, what would you be advising them to do?
2: I think the report has a number of useful uses to in business application. I think using some of the really effective graphs and charts in there to set context for your boards and executives around the importance of climate action, but also to illustrate and provide context to the global momentum that's occurring. Um, I think you can use it to understand and frame the impacts on your business, so both physical and transitional impacts, um, particularly for those businesses who are exposed to international markets for the same reason. It's useful to know the context within which um, international markets are acting when we are comparatively lagging. Um, it provides you some good uh, information around which to justify and substantiate ambitious emissions targets, which are aligned with some of these longer term trajectories, and to make sure that you've got mid term emissions targets underway along that path. <clears throat> it can also provide an input into understanding uh, the financial impacts on your business associated with some of these uh, physical climate risks. And so Um, engaging with the scientific literature, not just from the IPCC report, but actually looking at downscale information to understand the physical impacts on the asset base that you have, the timing and scale of those impacts and how resilient you are, uh, informs how material the impact would be for you. Um, And then understanding your adaptation actions in the context of that risk, so your ability to act or not, and your risk tolerance in terms of how much risk you'd like to assume.
0: So something that you both mentioned was the adaptation element. Are we at a point now, clearly, that climate change is locked in? We are experiencing it. We are seeing greater number of um, extreme events. What does it mean for the adaptation then of Australian businesses and sectors?
1: At least twenty years of embedded climate change in the system. It will take about twenty years before. It'll take about twenty years before. The climate has equilibrated to the levels of CO2 in the atmosphere now, we're already seeing clearly in the observations the emergence of a range of climate extremes. We're going to see those worsen for at least two decades. There's no doubt whatsoever that you have to be thinking about adaptation. The huge problem is, and Sally mentioned downscaling, You've got to be really careful with downscaling in terms of how it informs you on physical risk around the kinds of physical risk that are damaging to a business. Regional downscaling gets you to 20 by 20 kilometers if you're lucky. So uh, physical downscaling gives you information at maybe 10 by 10 or 20 by 20 kilometers, but not robust information unless the global model they're embedded in is robust and they are known to not do well on things that persist for time, like droughts, and they don't do well on extreme extremes. Not the once a year event or the once every two year event, but they really have a lack of skill in simulating the one in 20 year event or the one in 50 year event. If your business is vulnerable to the one in two year event, you've got a serious problem with your business. The regional downscaling, I'm not at all clear, provides you more than some broad indicative guide at maybe a 20 by 20 or 30 by 30 kilometre scale for how things that are likely to place business at serious risk um, would change. So let's unpack
0: that a little bit. So the first thing we were talking about was the inertia in the climate systems. So we've got a 20-year lag before we see the benefits of any Mitigation uh, is that correct? Yep. So for businesses, some businesses only have short-term thinking. Other businesses have much longer-term thinking, depending on their asset life and their investment portfolio as well. How do we balance short-term thinking versus long-term thinking?
1: Ah, uh, look. Surely, from at least from my perspective, businesses are in a responsive mode where they're trying to do their best in a very challenging environment. For me, you need the policy settings right that guides business with some form of certainty, and those governments around the world that have got those policy settings uh, quite clear, I think, are seeing the benefits in how business responds.
0: So quite clearly, um, policy settings need to be in place in Australia to help
1: provide a, a more stable environment? I think it depends on the nature of the business. For big business that is multinational, they're already seeing the nature of uh, how policies being put in place by the American, the European, the British governments are having an impact. Most of the big multinationals see the writing on the wall, I think, and recognize that they have to be really uh, quite clear on their emission strategies because there's nowhere to hide if you are functioning internationally. If you're a small Australian company, uh, you might think that the current policy settings are going to be sustained, but I think that would be very naive. I think Australia will go to net zero by dot, dot, dot very soon.
0: And that's what we're seeing with multiple players, commitments to net zero for particularly the large multinational organisations who see a long future with their business and their business customers, what um, what are the implications for insurance now that um, the world is equipped with the latest science?
1: I think the risk of climate change to insurers is is extremely complex, uh, and it all depends on. Again, goes back to that federal response to climate change. So, for instance, there's been temptation to start building insurance pools to cover northern Australia. Uh, Federal government has been trying to build uh, basically an insurance pool to help cover risk because the insurers didn't want to cover risk in northern Australia because insurers don't like insuring things they know will happen. That really changes the nature of the market. A lot of insurers were going to exit certain risk as the risk grew. Governments don't like insurers exiting the risk and don't like insurance push insurers pushing the premiums up to a level that no one can afford. So there's now the beginnings of a market that's being interfered with by a federal government and has high risk of uh, moral hazard at the very least. Uh, the other one that's now emerging which I had forgotten to mention was one of the really neat things in the new IPCC report is the discussion of compound events. So many of us think about an extreme event, uh, extreme rainfall, but actually extreme rainfall co-occurring with extreme wind can be much more damaging. Uh, And the IPCC have started to tease out some of that compound um, event stuff, but we also understand, and a good example is, the heat waves that occurred in Canada followed by the heat waves in the Baltic states, followed by the extreme rainfall in Germany and then extreme rainfall in China were all physically connected dynamically through the atmosphere. They were one meteorological event with a wide hemispheric footprint. Understanding how that changes the risk profile for insurance companies and how that feeds through the market and into the reinsurance market globally is a really fascinating topic that's just beginning to emerge. And Sally, how
0: are some of your clients dealing with compound risks, which are extremely complex to actually understand? How are they thinking about these issues?
2: Yeah, they certainly are very complex. And I'd say that we're only just dipping our toe into into the water in terms of understanding the the nature of those. I think they provide a useful stress test on your business to understand particularly where you might be vulnerable to those coincident or compound impacts, particularly in supply chains or other connected kind of operations in terms of understanding where, um, how long you can sustain an outage for um, and then looking at thresholds in terms of what that means for um, climate-related impacts. So if you get an impact in a distribution hub, a port, something similar that's carrying uh, vital goods for you, how long can you sustain an interruption to that? And what kinds of events might cause that level of interruption and how might um, cascading events in the supply chain potentially impact different points of that process.
0: So, Andy, AR6 offers insights into climate tipping points. What are some examples of these tipping points? How would they occur and what would they manifest into?
1: So this is a really good example, Peter, of where climate scientists have traditionally been a little bit too conservative. Uh, I've never been a fan of tipping points uh, because they're extremely rare. They exist, undoubtedly. You can see them in the geological record. But the risk of a significant tipping point occurring this century was assumed to be extremely low. And then irritating people took observations, and it's emerged that things like what's called the thermohaline circulation, which most of you would know of as the Gulf Stream, is demonstrably weakening. And the Gulf Stream warms the atmosphere as it flows across the Atlantic by about eight degrees. And if... Any of you want to, you can go to your old high school atlas and look at the difference in temperature in London with the same latitude in Canada, and you get Labrador, and it's really cold there. And it's the Gulf Stream that makes that difference, and the Gulf Stream is weakening. This is a known tipping point. It has weakened in the past and plunged Western Europe into a little ice age. Where temperatures dropped by 20 degrees in one to two decades, which is a bit scary if you think about it. Um, There are other tipping points. Collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet raises sea levels by uh, some amount, and the amount is probably not important because it's sort of eight to 15 meters, and eight eight meters is plenty to cause utter global catastrophe. Um, There's collapse of major global ecosystems like the Amazon which is a possible risk of drying and warming of um, Brazil and parts of South America. There's ocean acidification, which is observed now. The ocean is becoming more less alkaline, which has all kinds of implications for the base of food chains. Uh, there's the Arctic sea ice, which is clearly being lost. There's a collapse of the permafrost in in northern hemisphere, which contains large amounts of carbon and methane. There's lots of these tipping points. And I thought they were all virtually negligible risk. And unfortunately, in the last five to 10 years, observations have indicated increasing instability in some of those tipping points. I cannot tell you what the risk of each of those tipping points is being executed this century. No one knows. But the consequences of any of those tipping points going is extraordinary. And in any risk framework, rule one is don't let it happen. And there's an easy solution to that, which is stop emitting CO2.
0: And that's where we're heading to. So We're seeing emergence of these extreme um, events occurring potentially, but we just want to step away from that. So the key takeaway then is we need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions uh, globally. So Sally, what does that mean in a practical sense? How are we seeing the financial um, and investor community responding in the absence of any meaningful policy change here in Australia?
2: That's part of the comment there, Peter, around specifically what this report tell, can tell us, what's useful about this around the carbon budget and the peak and halving of emissions. There's an interesting um, graph in the report that shows us that to meet the low emissions pathways, emissions need to peak effectively immediately and be halving for the lowest emissions pathway, uh, what looks like about 2030, and reaching net zero just after or on 2050 and then in the low 2.6, SSP1 2.6, halving before 2050, um, And so I think investors are really driving, in the absence of policy action companies, to be more responsive in terms of providing information about how they're planning for future decarbonisation, how they might be um, moving towards net zero emissions in, on and around 2050, um, and then really looking to ensure that their investment decision-making is aligned with that objective. So we find a lot of our um, investor clients more interested in understanding finance emissions as well as understanding um, what the risk is associated with the portfolios that they're already invested in, both from a transitional and physical risk perspective.
0: So, Andy, are we moving fast enough? What do we need to do
1: and what is the science telling us? It just depends how lucky you feel, Peter. If you're happy with a 50-50 chance of avoiding two degrees, yeah, you've got maybe uh, 30 years to get to net zero emissions, maybe 25. It just depends on how that emission scenario plays out. But I'm not that keen on a 50-50 chance for the future of the planet, I'd like a 100% chance of not exceeding two degrees, which is indeed what the Paris Agreement asserts. And our calculations say that gives you 13 years to get to net zero emissions globally. I mean, net zero emissions by 2035. 2050 is too late. You've got to get to net zero by 2035. And that means if governments wake up to that reality, they are going to bring far more draconian uh, emissions reductions to the table and companies are going to have to respond to that by moving their targets from net zero by 2050 to net zero by 2035.
0: Well there's the challenge. So Sally do you think businesses can actually achieve that challenge?
2: It's certainly easier in some industries than it is in others. So the um, clients that we have who are setting really ambitious uh, decarbonisation targets now are clients who have a large component of their energy use being associated with electricity use, which is easier to decarbonize than other sources. So I think those businesses can get there quickly, but then also they're not commonly the most material emitters in the economy. So there's a, a, a swathe of very large emitters in the economy with significant hard-to-abate emission sources and genuine challenges ahead of them in terms of abating those sources in that timeframe.
0: Well, thank you very much, Sally, and thank you very much, Andy. To our listeners, this is the first in a three part series we are running on IPCC's AR6 report. Look out for our second podcast, which features a conversation with climate extremes expert Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick. If you have any questions from today's discussion, please feel free to contact Energetics via our website, or if you're a client, please reach out to your Energetics account manager. Energetics Exchange Podcast. Conversations with energy and climate experts.